Uh, can I get you to turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 27? Matthew 27. We're continuing our series through Matthew. Chapter 27. We're looking at verses 1 to 26 today. If you're there's plenty of room in these front seats here if you want to if you want to come forward, Paul. You're all right, okay, that's fine. Yeah. Um, uh, very warm welcome to you, especially those who are visiting. We've got a whole lot of visitors here today. Uh, I won't name everyone, but there is a group from uh, uh, Trin- Bethany Trin- Trinity Bethany Presbyterian Church in Singapore. Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church, Singapore, uh, and it's great to have you here with us. Um, it's uh, yeah, very warm welcome to you as well. And let me lead us in prayer. As we, uh, as we begin. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us through your word. We thank you that our Lord Jesus was indeed pierced for our transgressions and, and crushed for our iniquities. That the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And that by his words we are healed. Help us, Father, as we uh, look at um, this account of his trial, of his passion, and we pray that uh, you will open our eyes to see him more clearly um, and more clearly see how we should respond to him. I pray your spirit will work in us now as we read your word together. In Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the judge of the world. That he will be the one that each and every person has to answer to at the end whether they are Jews or Gentiles. But in the hours before his death, he was the one in the dock. He was the one on trial. Not once, but twice. Once by the Jews, and once by the Gentiles. Last week we saw how Jesus had been tried by the Sanhedrin, the the ruling council of the Jews. It was a show trial. They'd already decided that he was going to die, but they were looking for a way to condemn him. And in the end, he gave them away. He claimed to be, he claimed a place at the right hand of God, sitting up there with him. And that was enough for them to find him guilty of blasphemy. And blasphemy, under Jewish law, deserved death. But the Jews could not carry out the death sentence. It was not within their rights. They were an occupied nation. And the only ones who could legally kill a man were the Romans. Do you think the Romans would care if someone spoke blasphemy against the Jews' God? No. Do you think they put someone to death simply because they they offended the Jewish leadership with claims to be equal with God? No. The Jewish leadership was was satisfied as far as their law was concerned. They had done the need for He deserved death. But they have to do far better than that if they were going to convince the Romans to crucify Jesus. So they had another meeting. Chapter 27 verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. They figured out their plan. Then they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. 
Now, Pilate was the governor the, or the prefect of Judea from AD 26 to AD 37. Most of his reign was peaceful, though there were some violent clashes between Jews and Romans at the time. Before he came, though, there was 20 years of peace. And as soon as he was appointed, back in AD 26, he kind of brought in army standards and embossed with figures of the emperor into Jerusalem. The Jews were really upset because they thought, this is, this is idolatry, this is a big uproar. So it wasn't, there were problems, you see. And then later on another occasion, he took money from the temple to build an aqueduct, to bring water supply into Jerusalem. He thought that was okay, but the Jews didn't like it because he took money from the temple. People found out there were massive protests. And he put soldiers in the crowd, dressed as civilians, and beat up protesters. No tear gas in those days. That wasn't the worst of the bullying things Pilate did. There were one occasion, Luke tells us that he somehow or other must have got offended or got upset with some of the Jews and mixed their blood with their sacrifices. But all this was while a guy called Sejanus, a very anti-Jewish leader, was a de facto ruler in Rome. But in AD 31, Sejanus was executed. Emperor Tiberius regained control of the empire and he wrote to all the governors telling them to treat the Jews fairly. Pilate now has to show his loyalty to Tiberius. He's upset the Jews before. They had that on him. And he's under pressure to keep them happy so they don't complain about him to the emperor. That will be important, understanding his behavior later on. Jewish leadership, tie up Jesus, deliver him, hand him over to Pilate the governor. And they want him to give him the death sentence. But before we come to see what Pilate will do with him, our attention is turned away to another execution. The self-execution of Judas, betrayer of Jesus. The story begins in verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. He changed, he changed his mind. He saw that Jesus was condemned. And he changed his mind. Ever done something that you regret afterwards? Ever said something you wish you didn't? Ever been in a position where you give anything just to, to take back, reverse what you've just done? Judas changed his mind. So he tried to undo his crime. He, he tried to give the money back. Halfway through verse 3. He changed his mind. He brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. And he said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He knew Jesus is innocent. He said, I, I'm guilty. Jesus is innocent. I've sinned. But the chief priests and the elders, they're not interested in Judah's testimony. They don't go, oh really, he's innocent? Oh no, okay, okay, we better not execute him now. No. Here they are, warned by the betrayer himself that they are about to kill an innocent man. 
God is kind enough to them to send them this last warning before they kill him. They pay no attention because they've got a plan. They're going to fulfill it. Judas, that was his own fault. He was willingly used in the plan. They don't care about justice for Jesus and they don't care about Judas either. And so they answer in verse 4. What is that to us? See to it yourself. We don't care. So what does Judas do at this point? He wanted to return the money, but they wouldn't take it. He wanted them to release Jesus, but obviously they wouldn't do it. His actions could not be reversed. And so he did the best he could. He threw the money on the floor of the temple in verse 5. Then he went away and punished himself. He hanged himself. Killed by his own guilty conscience. What did the chief priests do with the money? The funny thing is that they're so, they're still really concerned to do the right thing. Amazing, isn't it? So, going to be so careful with the law while lawfully plotting the murder of an innocent man. Let's see what they do. Verses 6 to 10. The chief priest, taking the piece of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and brought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what has been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. They gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord had directed me. Now, the ideas from this quote actually come from a mixture of Jeremiah and Zechariah. They're fused. Whenever the New Testament cites a a mixture of Old Testament prophets, the one it names is either the more prominent one, or the one that is hardest to work out from the quote itself. That makes sense. And here it is both. Jeremiah is the more prominent prophet, so he's named. And also, the Zechariah, you could have, if you read that, you're familiar with Zechariah, you can see exactly where it comes from. Easy. But with Jeremiah, it's, it's harder to see the illusions. Uh, and so, in giving us the name Jeremiah, Matthew is saying, look, read this, not only in the context of Zechariah, but in the context of Jeremiah as well. Now, that quotation from Zechariah, we looked at a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? Uh, when Tim took us through chapter 26, verse 15, so we're not going to do it in detail. Um, look, talk about it very, very briefly. You can listen to it on the internet if you missed it. But in Zechariah, God's shepherd annulled the covenant that he made with his people. And in turn, they priced him for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. And God told him to throw that 30 pieces of silver into the house of the Lord, the temple. And yet, strangely, it's also to the potter. In Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 19, verse 1, we don't have PowerPoints today, so, but Jeremiah chapter 19, verse 1, God tells Jeremiah to take the chief priests, the elders of the people, 
These are people playing the very same role as, as are being played in the death of Jesus here. And to go to this valley. And Jeremiah is told to go there and proclaim disaster on Jerusalem. Not only because of their wicked idolatry, but because at the end of verse 4, they have filled the place with the blood of innocence. And then God told Jeremiah to take a potter's earthenware flask, a jar, and smash it in the field. And so God said, in verse 11, So I will break this people as this, and this city, as one breaks a potter's vessel, so it can never be mended. Now that same group of people, the chief priests, the elders, in Jesus' day, they paid 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. For Judas to betray Jesus. When Judas threw it back into the temple, they bought a potter's field as a burying ground. And as they bought that potter's field, they should have remembered the history behind it. And the words of Jeremiah being fulfilled from 600 years before. Even though they were fulfilled once at the exile, they continue to speak. They would have continued to speak a warning to them. They were guilty of innocent blood. Once again, Jerusalem would come to judgment and be destroyed. And the people and the city would be smashed as a potter's vessel that cannot be mended. But before the physical nation was destroyed, the one who is the true Israel would be smashed as well. And the story that goes back, sorry, goes back to him in verse 11 as he faces Pontius Pilate, his judge. And we're not told what um, the Jews have said to Pilate, but we can work out from the question that Pilate asked Jesus what their charge was. Verse 11, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Are you? That makes sense, doesn't it? Because the chief priests and elders, they must have accused him to Pilate of being the king of the Jews. Blasphemy wouldn't work with the Romans, but, but treason would. Taking God's position for yourself wouldn't be a capital crime for the Romans, but, but taking the position of the emperor, hmm, that would be a different matter entirely. That would be their best chance. And so when Pilate asks him the question, well, once again, Jesus admits the claim is true. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. It, it, it admits it reluctantly. It's Pilate's words, not his, but it's still saying, yes. Jesus is the king of the Jews. Pilate asked, he answered. And then he wouldn't answer any more questions. Once again, he refused to defend himself. Once again, as the chief priests and the elders come and say, look, about this and this and this and this, he just keeps quiet. Verse 12, but when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Remember, last week, the servant of the Lord, from Isaiah, the one who was pierced for our transgressions, dies for sins and rises again. 
It says about him that he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Pilate tried to persuade him to speak in verse 13. Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. So the governor was greatly amazed. Here's this guy who, who seems to be innocent, but he admits to being a king, but he won't answer all the accusations that are brought against him. Something's, something's wrong somewhere. Pilate actually doesn't want to execute the prisoner. We'll see why in a moment. So he's trying to think of a way out. Verse 15. Now at the feast the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barnabas. No, not Barnabas. Barabbas. Uh, poor Barnabas, huh? Sorry. Okay. Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you? Barabbas? Or Jesus, who is called Christ. See, Pilate is hoping he can say, alright, okay, I'll do what the chief priests want, and find him guilty, and then I'll release him in my annual amnesty. Alright, got my cake, eat it as well. Everyone's happy. Because actually he wanted to get Jesus off the hook. You see, Pilate's no fool. He's been doing this job for a while. He knows, verse 18, that it is out of envy they have delivered him to them. It's not anything else. He knows the charge of treason is an excuse. He knows what's going on. And there's another reason why Pilate doesn't want to condemn him. It's in verse 19. Besides that, while sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent a word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man. For I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Once again, we see God's kindness in warning someone before the disaster they're about to create. Chief priest had their warning, now Pilate got his warning. Warned by his wife. And on top of that, he can jolly well see that this guy is not a threat to national security. Yet, he will not be firm on it. He just, the best he does is look for a fudge way through the through, 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 through amnesty. Jewish leaders, though, aren't going to let go so easily. In fact, they're probably one step ahead. Uh, verse 20. Now the chief priests and the elders persuade the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus? Who is to be called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. Pilate knows this is, this is, this is wrong. He's innocent. He cries out to them. He says, why? What evil has he done? For they shout all the more, let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. And Pilate is scared of the crowd. He's not winning in his attempts to get Jesus released. 
He wants to say, this is not my fault. I don't want to do this. I'm not trying to condemn Jesus, but, but I'm trying to release him. The crowds don't want to let me to. The Jewish leaders are backing me into a corner. So what does he do? Verse 24. When he saw he was gaining nothing, but rather the arrival was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd. And he said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Now back in the book of Deuteronomy, 21 if you're taking notes, if there was an unsolved murder in the open country, the elders of the nearest city would sacrifice a heifer, a female calf, and they would wash their hands over the sacrifice and say, our hands did not shed this blood, nor our eyes see it shed. Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel, so that blood, group, blood guilt be atoned for. And say, look, this is not me. I didn't do this. And Pontius Pilate washes his hands in front of everyone to say, this is not me. I'm not doing this. I'm innocent. It's not my fault. See to it yourselves, you people. The exact same words that the chief priests and elders had said to Judas. Not my responsibility, Pilate says. Now the logic's clearly wrong, isn't it? Pilate is responsible for upholding justice. And he will be blamed for Jesus' death, together with the Jewish leadership. But the chief priests in the crowd, they're not going to argue with him. They want a quick decision. They are willing to take responsibility for themselves for what Paul is about to do. And so when he washes his hands, they all answer, verse 25, His blood be on us and on our children. We will take responsibility. Okay, Pilate, you're innocent. We'll take the blame. And Pilate, against his better judgment, bows to the pressure of the crowd. Then he released, verse 26, for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. As we think of what we learn from this, let's do so by considering each of the major players here one by one. Think first about Judas, the betrayer who regrets. The one who could not undo his past. The one who could not reverse his action and so punished himself in that ultimate way. The man who was killed by his own conscience. Now friends, you and I are sinful, like Judas. You and I have done things that we wish we had never done. You and I have said things that we wish we had never said. But we can't. Turn the clock back. We can't make things different. We can do all that we can to rectify the situation, but we cannot turn back time, not even a few hours. You can throw all your ill-gotten money away. Or you can give it to charity. But it doesn't mean you never took it in the first place. 
You could put I love Jesus a hundred times as your screensaver. But it doesn't mean you didn't sneak a look at porn. You can resign from your company. But it doesn't mean you didn't visit a prostitute while entertaining clients in your company trip. Regretting what you did. Changing your mind about it. In itself is not enough. Wishing you'd not done it is not good enough. Vowing never to do it again is not good enough. Judas could not undo his past by going back to the chief priests and the elders and, and so the guilty one executed himself. And the words of Jesus came true. Would have been better for him if he had not been born. Friends, you and I cannot take away the sins of the past. No matter how much we cry, no matter how much we weep, no matter how sorry we feel, we cannot turn back the clock. But there is one thing, and only one, that can take care of the sins of the past. The innocent blood of Jesus shed for us. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There's only one cure for sin. The death of Jesus on the cross on our behalf. The one thing that can satisfy your conscience rightly is the one thing that can satisfy God's justice. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died in your place to take your sin. The sin that haunts you, the sin that distresses you, the sin that the devil uses to tell you you can't possibly be a Christian, Jesus died to pay that punishment for that sin in full. So that you can be forgiven. So that God can count you righteous. So that as far as God's judgment is concerned, it can be said that it never happened. And he does not punish you for it. And if he does not punish you, then why should you, like Judas, punish yourself? If God has justified you. Who are you to condemn yourself? You see, the problem with Judas is when he was remorseful, what he did not do was turn to Jesus. It was only Jesus who could have brought him forgiveness. Judas did not go to the cross. Judas did not wait for the resurrection. Jesus said those things would happen. Judas must not have trusted him that they would. And instead he went to the temple where he got no help from the chief priests and the elders. They told him to see to it himself and he did. 
What do you do when you're remorseful? Brothers and sisters, always go to the cross. Never try to make things up by doing things to cleanse your conscience. You can't do that. Go to the cross. Go to the one who we saw last week is the true temple. Jesus himself. Because in him, there is the promise of forgiveness and a fresh start. There's Judas. Let's look at Pilate. As you read the passages, it's almost as if Pontius Pilate is the one on trial here rather than Jesus. Do you notice that? Jesus knows the Father's will. He's prepared to accept it. He's calm. And Pilate's the one, like, <laughs> really struggling, trying to work out what to do. He knows what is right. He's too spineless to do it. Knows the prisoner is innocent, but washes his hands, passes the blame, orders the execution in the end. Well, it's not that easy to shift the blame, is it? He has the responsibility to uphold justice. Can't just absolve himself. Like it or not, the decision is his. He's got to do something with Jesus. He would either protect him and risk getting the Jews upset and start a riot and complain to his boss and who knows what kind of trouble he'll be in. Or he'll let them have their way and execute Jesus. Like it or not, in the end, the sentence has to be passed by him. I'm innocent of this man's blood. That's a cop-out. It's saying, okay, but I'm not responsible. But by saying, okay, he's condemning Jesus. Yes, Pilate was a bully, but it turned out to be weak where it mattered most. How often do you and I wash our hands when it comes to what is right? How often do you and I perpetuate injustice, not by wanting to do it ourselves, but by absolving ourselves of the responsibility and giving it to willing others? You know, when Jesus stood before Pilate, it would have been just one, a long series of problems and prisoners and issues that Pilate, this governor of this whole area, had got to deal with. And except for his wife's warning, the case of Jesus would have been just like, you know, one thing, you know, it's just like another case. Got to deal with the prisoner, got to be trying to be just, got to keep my Jews happy, that's their complaint to my boss, then I got to finish early so I can get home to watch the Roman chariot Rachel Nestra. Little did he know that how he dealt with this prisoner would be how people view him for the rest of history. Little did he know that the one thing that millions and millions of people around the world, down through the ages, would know about him is that he was a coward for sentencing Jesus to death under the pressure of the Jewish leadership. And little did he know, as he sat on his judgment seat, judging Jesus, that one day Jesus would sit on his judgment seat, judging him. I remember thinking about this passage when I was still practicing medicine. Medicine, you see one patient after another, after another. 
And the temptation might be to stop treating people as people, just a, another problem to solve, or worse, to get rid of. I think that's what Pilate's doing here. See, you've really got, you've really got to give yourself to each patient you see, one by one, by one. It's a matter of principle, because each patient has got things to be cared for, each patient has got their medical problems. Each patient needs to be dealt with properly. Now, translate that to your own work situation. Each case you deal with, each client you see, each student you teach, each child you care for, needs to be treated properly. You need to be just to everyone. Give them what they deserve. Even if you're busy, even if it's going to be unpopular, justice is more important than popularity. Pilate failed in his job to be a just judge to Jesus. And Jesus suffered under his rule. Let's not do that. But the implications here is not just about Christians being just to others. If you're someone who is considering the claims of Jesus, then, then what would you, like Pilate, do with him? Would you let the prejudice of others, your family, your friends, maybe even your leaders, turn you against him, even though you think he's okay? Don't let that happen, will you? Because if you're in a position of considering the claims of Christ, you're very much like the position that Pilate was in. You're making a judgment about the one who is the true judge. And the one who one day will judge you. Thought about Judas. Thought about Pilate. What about the chief priests and the elders? They're the real villains here, aren't they? They're the ones who've been plotting Jesus' death. They're the ones who bribed Judas and then rejected him when he tried to fix things up. They're the ones who conducted the sham trial to find a reason to execute Jesus. They're the ones who handed him over to Pilate. And were pressuring him to find him guilty of treason. They're the ones who are exciting people to call for Jesus' execution. Yet, they were the leaders of Israel. They were the religious authorities. And there, big Taiko fellow, the big, you know, the big boss who's controlling the whole thing. Who's that? It's the, it's the chief priest. The number one highest religious authority in the land. If you were a Jew in the crowd, would you be impressed? The chief priests? All those high up religious folk? Always ones who are careful to do the right thing by the law? They're all saying that this Jesus is no good and needs to be executed. Surely they must be right. There are, there are God-given leaders. But they were wrong. And if you followed them, 
then you too would have been in that crowd shouting, Crucify him. Crucify him. Let his blood be on us and on our children. And 40 years later, when the Romans plundered the city and Jerusalem was destroyed, you might even remember what you said and realize that you were facing the consequences of rejecting the Messiah. Friends, don't follow someone just because he's a known religious leader. Just because he's got reverend or very reverend or right reverend or most reverend or whatever other thing before his name. Just because he's high up in a denominational hierarchy or because he's famous or written books or been on TV or have many people come to his rallies. Religious leaders can be wrong. Many are. Jesus is not. Only follow leaders who follow Christ. Fourthly, we have Barnabas. The name Barnabas means son of the father. No, not Barnabas. Let's try again. Barabbas. Right. Bar, son of, Abba, father, Barabbas. Okay? Barabbas. Yes, Barabbas. Okay. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us much about him, uh, except that in verse 16 he's a notorious prisoner. And the crowd is asked to choose between the notorious prisoner, this notorious criminal, and Jesus. And they choose notorious criminal. Because that's what the leaders tell them to do. The Romans would have already prepared three crosses for execution that day. And Pilate had probably ordered the execution of Barabbas together with the two other criminals. So imagine the surprise of Barabbas when he walked free and Jesus went to his cross instead. And brothers and sisters, we who are saved are a little like Barabbas in this story, aren't we? We are the guilty ones, heading for certain disaster, heading for the judgment of God, and then we see Jesus, the true Son of the Father, going to the cross instead. We are the ones who deserve God's punishment. Jesus went and took it in our place. Not because the crowd preferred us, but because the Father loved us and chose us. My Lord, what love is this? that paid so dearly that I, the guilty one, may go free. But Judas, Pilate, chief priests, Barabbas, and now we have Jesus. And Jesus is the only innocent one in the whole story. Judas says Jesus is innocent. Pilate says Jesus is innocent. Pilate's wife says he is a righteous man. 
And we all know that Jesus is innocent because we've read the rest of Matthew and followed his life through. He's innocent of blasphemy because he really is Lord. He's innocent of treason because he really is the King of Kings. He is the true Son of the Father who is putting up with injustice twice over in obedience to the Father and love for us. He's the innocent Passover lamb who would die in the place of notorious sinners like Barabbas, like you, and like me. He's the one our Old Testament passage spoke about in Psalm 2. God's king who was rejected because the leaders of the nations plotted against him will be vindicated by God and judge and rule the world. So what will you do with Jesus? Betray him like Judas? Oppose him like the chief priests? Fail him like Pilate? Or bow the knee before the one who really is the king? What will you do with Jesus? Neutral you cannot be. Someday your heart will be asking, what will he do with me? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus, in obedience to you, love for us was willing to undergo not just one unjust trial but two as he made his way to the cross thank you that he died for us the innocent for the guilty that like Barabbas we can stand in awe and surprised that though we have sinned he has taken the punishment. Thank you that even though we cannot turn back the clock, the blood of Jesus can wipe away our sins. That his death was the one true perfect sacrifice that really does deal with our sin. Help us, Father, to not just regret our sins, but to truly bring them to the cross to truly trust your son and father we pray that as a result we would indeed be living lives that seek to honor him and please him and that we would be just in the way we deal with others in the home at work wherever you place us. And Father, we, we pray that we would not be spineless, that we would not shrug the responsibilities you have given us, but that we would learn to do what is right, whether or not it is popular. 
Father, help us to look not unto man who is so fallible and so easily lead us astray, but unto Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the pain and then entered glory. We pray this in his name. Amen. Shall we stand as we sing the next song, Remembering God's